This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. We are going to bump the episode that we had planned for today. And it's a really good one. But with everything that is happening, something feels off in asking you to turn your attention away from anti-black racism and away from police brutality and away from this massive international swell of action and protest and instead focus on some other story that we have for you. So we won't do that. And it's okay. That other story will keep. For now, today, we are going to share with you a conversation that we originally published last fall before the federal election in the wake of Justin Trudeau's multiple blackface and brownface scandals. It's a conversation with Dr. Cheryl Thompson, an assistant professor at Ryerson University's School of Creative Industries, who had been studying the history of blackface in Canada when those Justin Trudeau photos surfaced. Last week, As Rex Murphy used his national platform to deny racism in Canada, as Stockwell Day said the same thing on the airwaves of our public broadcaster, Cheryl Thompson began a project on Twitter, posting, as she put it, an article from Toronto newspapers from every decade from the 19th century to today, every day, until the message is received. Deep, deep deep-seated systemic racism. Stop denying it. You can see those articles in her Twitter feed, at Cheryl T., and you can hear our conversation in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hannah Gaunt, Liam Flagg, Andrea Watts, Elizabeth Anderson, Max Nichols, Alec Hayward, Brendan Joette, and Kelly. My name is Kelly. I'm an accountant from New Brunswick, and I support Canada Land because I believe it is important to support independent, Canada-focused journalism. In small provinces like mine, it is hard to find unbiased, reliable reporting. Canada Land's various shows do a great job reporting stories from across Canada in an informative and entertaining way. Although there is sometimes a heavy sprinkle of Toronto, Jesse is quick to call himself out on it so we can forgive him. Thank you. Professor Thompson, you 
study something that I think a week ago might have been considered kind of a niche thing, (laughs) the history of blackface in Canada. Honestly. And all of a sudden, you're the most in-demand academic. (laughs) You were telling me before we came that you were just getting calls from all around the world. What brought you to studying blackface in Canada? Because that's not something that I think that most people prior to this incident would even know was a thing. No. In fact, until I came upon it, I didn't know it was a thing either. So I stumbled on this. So it would have been... Back in 2011, I was doing my PhD at McGill in Montreal, and there was an incident that happened at a school named, um, it's HSA or HEC in, in English, and it's attached to the University of Montreal, I think. Anyway, Anthony Morgan, who's a lawyer now here in Toronto, he was a law student at McGill, and he was walking by this school for Frosh Week, and he saw half the student body in blackface dressed as Jamaicans and mimicking kind of like the Cool Runnings movie. And he was like, what is this? So then he taped it. It went viral. He ended up on CNN. Same thing. He ended up this whole thing. And I was in Montreal thinking, what's going on? And then it happened a few years before at U of T. But I just wasn't as connected, maybe because I wasn't in school. Point is, I then just said, let me look into this. I literally, it was just a curiosity. At the time, because you're a university student, you can go into the, you know, the university archives and you have access, basically. So then I just literally Googled in the search, blackface and Montreal, because I was in Montreal. I couldn't tell you how many listings came up. It was like a deluge of listings. And I was like, oh, I guess this is a topic. And then I started to look in museums in the province. And museums have tons of archives where they hold images of people in blackface. They haven't interrogated them, but they just have them because I guess they just, again, like the PM, they're embarrassed. So they just kind of let them sit there, but they're glad they show you them, right? So I just started looking into this. Literally, that's all that happened. There was an incident. I responded. And then I realized that no one is talking about this. All right. Well, I think we need to start at the beginning of, of what, when you dug into this and found out where it came from and, and why it came here. But before we talk about the Canadian context, I think it's worth refreshing. Like, what is blackface? Yeah. Where did it come from? So blackface minstrelsy is the long word for it. And we also know it as the minstrel show really originated in the U.S. in the 1830s and 40s. So in the U.S., we're really talking about the Northeast. So Philadelphia, New York, Boston, like those are the main three areas. And it really was like northern white men who I should say had never been to the South were imagining the plantation at a moment in American history where there were tensions in the North and South about the institution of slavery. Like we all know that the Civil War in the U.S. happened in the 1860s, but we don't realize there was decades leading up to that war that they were wondering, is this system still feasible in America, right? So the minstrel show depicted this scene, African-Americans on the South And at the same time, African-Americans living in the North. So they pitted these two caricatures against each other, basically. And the show said that they were different types of black people. There were black people living in the South who would be caricatured in the minstrel show as lazy, eating watermelon. That's where the stereotype of watermelon and black people comes from. But at the same time, being very contented in their subordination. That's why it's not a coincidence that these characters or one of the characters in the South was called Jim Crow. And that's the same Jim Crow name of segregation that happens in the 1890s. So they took the same name. At the same time, you had the pitting of the African-American living in the North, who is out of place in the North. Like this caricature would dress really loud, have really long, big collars, big feet. They, they were basically a buffoon. Mm-hmm. 
And so now we can take these two archetypes and just think in your head, you've probably seen them in Hollywood movies at some point. Absolutely. And so that's where it comes from. It comes from this thing that originated in the 1830s and 40s. By the time it's in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we're now talking about vaudeville, which is a form of theater that is essentially the early variety show, Mm -hmm. right? You have burlesque, jugglers, and then you would have a minstrel set in between like all of these performances. And it's really from vaudeville that rolls into film we then have the continuation of like a minstrel character, not necessarily the minstrel show as I described, right? That north-south kind of pitting against one another. But what I always like to say to people, we have to remember the very first Hollywood film is called The Jazz Singer. Mm -hmm. The very first Hollywood talking picture is from 1927. That's Al Jolson in blackface. Yeah. So that's the origins of Hollywood too. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, blackface, it's not... That's the past. They don't understand that it's in all of our media. That is the root of it. So that means it's actually still here. You know, it's not going to appear the way it did in the 1830s and 40s, right? It's going to look the way media products look today. That helps, I think, understand how Americans were processing their relationship with race. Yes. As things were changing. That doesn't really connect with Canada, right? Right. Like if, if this was a valve through which America was able to like kind of like simultaneously put black people down, but also romanticize them, if I understand it right. Yeah. Like it wasn't simply like we're mocking you because we hate you. It was like this kind of like, oh, it's an idyllic pastoral, like this, they worry for nothing. And it's uh, look, yes. look at the old South. I mean, it's the reason, you know, Eric Lott, who wrote a book on blackface in 1993, he called it love and theft. Yeah. Because it was both. (laughs) Yeah. And the truth is, it's always been both. Like, if we look at Elvis, right? Like, Elvis was doing black music, not because he hated black people. He was stealing. He was was mimicking. At the same time, he wasn't diminishing. It was a kind of love and theft. Well, it's a complicated relationship. That's actually the title. uh, Yeah. I'm sure the the Bob Dylan album, Love and Theft, where I think he kind of resuscitates a lot of those old songs. And, you know, because you can't really distinguish American music from, you know, if you just put this in a category of this was a horrible act of racism to be kind of shut away and, well, then you'd have to throw away the entire history of American popular music, rock and roll. Well, this is it. That's why in the American context, people like, they always focus on race. No, they just understand that it's at the middle and center of everything. Whereas here, we like to look at these things as racial things just come up. And then, oh, look, we're back to normal now when that's not really the case, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's situate this in Canada. So that makes some kind of sense as America processes race, yeah. misprocesses it, whatever. What does that have to do with us? So think about all the American media that you consume today. You're not really processing what does Game of Thrones mean to me as a Canadian, right? You just know that this is an American show that you love a lot. The minstrel show at that time, it's the same idea. Like, they're just like, these are American imports that are so entertaining. We love them. They're not processing that the mere fact that you love this means that in the context of Canada, you have the same racial framing of where black people should be placed in your society. Yeah. But did it serve the same purpose? We're always interested in whatever showbiz America is up to. That's where the yeah. that's where the glossy, glitzy stuff comes from. That's where we'd rather watch that stuff. And, yeah. and the same was true back then. So Toronto was a place where touring companies would come. Yep. But did that mean something different to Canadians than it did to Americans? Because it was a different kind of anti-black racism in Canada. 
and at a different scale, did we understand it the same way? Well, the way I like to describe that is think about the railroad, right? And the sleeping car porters. So the sleeping car porters were black men who were cast with serving white passengers on the train overnight. The sleeping car was not just domiciled in America. It was in Canada, too. So that same archetype of the African-American or black male serving, wearing white gloves and smiling and being happy was across the country. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is that in the psyche of the white Canadian is this same desire to see black people in positions of either service and or as comedic foils of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is, is that there's never been a popular discourse to unpack that. To say, well, what does this actually mean? You're asking me the question. The truth is, we haven't unpacked it as a nation what it means. A lot of Canadians who would get served on a via rail train by a black porter, and as I understand it, they were all called George, whatever whatever their names were. Or boy, sometimes. Yeah. Or who might catch the show when it came to town or watch the jazz singer in a lot of communities would never meet a black person. Yes, that would be their only interaction. Yeah. I guess it's kind of like a, American popular entertainment telling you who's who and what's what and how to feel about people. Yeah. And, you know, they don't seem to understand what the implications of that, of those kind of thoughts really are. Yeah. That means when I go into a, a place outside of the city of Toronto and I step into the restaurant, they're expecting some stereotype that they've seen on TV. Yeah. And I've had people say, you seem so different. I'm thinking, I just met you. <laughs> right? Different than what? Yeah. Different than what? So what are you comparing me to? Yeah. Right? And it's the cultural product that they were watching. But it was not simply a matter of watching American minstrel shows. There was the Saskatoon minstrel show. There was the St. John Amateur Athletic Club, the Anderson Snowflake, uh, hundreds of, of... Yeah, hundreds of localized... Like, so how did that happen and was it different? Was, was it a Canadian minstrel show different than American minstrel show? No, because what you find in the 20th century, that's when on a local level, they start to form their own minstrel shows. So the high school would have a minstrel club, the athletic association, the local legion would have had its own like minstrel shows that they would have put on either monthly or annual. I mean, I'm writing a book about this. So to be honest, I myself am trying to theorize like what is happening. And I haven't fully, I think, got to the bottom of it yet. But just at first glance, what I will say is, you know, how are communities formed? Like communities are formed by gatherings, I would say pre the 1980s. So like in the 50s and 60s, in these small towns, these events that they would hold at the local legion or something, everybody would go to them, mm -hmm. right? And these were gatherings. So in my framing of it, they're not understanding that they're creating little nations, like little white nations of exclusion. While you're not overtly saying we don't want these people to come, if I am a black person living in, a, in say, Barrie in the 1950s, and I know the closest place for entertainment is putting on a minstrel show, I'm not going to go to that. So by the very nature of that performance happening, you're excluding me from participating in my own community. Yeah. And so now you're building a community where you feel safe and you're comfortable, but me as the black other, I have nowhere to go. I'm always on the periphery. And you can see how that can play out generation after generation. So I think that's what many white Canadians don't understand, how these performances create a culture of exclusion. My dad growing up in Winnipeg remembers Amos and Andy as a big popular yeah. culture. You know, like, I don't know where that gets filed. 
Well, because Amos and Andy, too, is the first, one of the first American radio programs that are, that's imported into Canada. So before it was on TV, it was a radio show. So weird on the radio, blackface on the radio. Right. So they would still, they would still black up to do the radio show. Really? So because it was filmed in front of a live audience. So the audience there would be getting, so think about To get the laughs, they would have to. To get the laughs. And, but then when they would, I even have sort of artifacts showing Amos and Andy promoted in the newspaper. And then so in the newspaper, they would show you the caricature so that you would know that this is a minstrel show that you're going to be listening to. Yeah. I'm wondering to what extent it became Canadian. And I mean, I I think the most shocking thing I read from your research is that O Canada has a connection to this history. If I recall, the person who wrote our national anthem would also write minstrel songs, right? Like he's connected. Calixa Lavalli. Yeah. The he, composer of O Canada. Yeah, he is deeply connected to to minstrel songs as well. And and you know there's been a lot of people, however, who defend this person and say, oh, race in the context of Canada is not the same. Yeah. So we shouldn't read it as being as it would be in the US. And what I always like to explain to people who perhaps aren't black is that when I travel outside of Canada, nobody looks at me and says, no, 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 she's black Canadian. Let's not call her the N-word. Right. They're not making any connection of my nationality. They're just seeing the color of my skin. So the border for a black person doesn't really mean as much. Did it take on a different type of context or meaning in Quebec? Because Quebec kind of clung to like kind of almost a right to do blackface. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. It still happens. Just a few years ago, there was a theater company who wanted to put on a tribute to P.K. Subban, who mm-hmm. used to play in Montreal. Instead of hiring a black actor to perform as P.K., they had a white actor do it in blackface in like 2014 or 15. And the truth is, you know, the Quebec state has a much more difficult time discussing race I think, than in English Canada. Not that English Canada is great. There's a tough time too, but there is something about the French state itself that just kind of refuses to have a serious discussion about what race means in a Franco environment. It's sort of hard to have a culture that doesn't take on local characteristics or evolve on a geographic basis, especially over time. And, you know, you began by talking about the campus where they were doing a version of blackface that maybe they themselves didn't think of in some sort of Al Jolson tradition because it was... uh, It was Jamaicans, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Jamaicans are the target of a lot of contemporary blackface. Is that like the Canadianization of blackface is making it about Jamaicans as opposed... Yeah. I mean, I think there's been scholars who have written about this too. Philip Howard is one of them out of McGill who focuses on contemporary blackface. And he's kind of talked about it in terms of this the immigration rhetoric of our era, right? And Mm -hmm. and so the othering that happens through contemporary blackface of like the ethnic black other, I think they make a distinction because they're not talking about, (laughs) this is going to sound funny, but there are some people who believe that African-Americans are the only real black people. So because they're not mimicking African-Americans, they're not really offending anyone. (laughs) That's like double. There's two messages there that like are kind of equally as horrid. Yeah. Your particular research tracks this through Canadian newspapers. So newspapers and uh, photographs. So this is interesting to us here because we're really interested in Canadian news media and the history thereof. So like what what do you see when you're going through Canadian periodicals? Well, first I have close to 1,500 files that document touring blackface in the legit theater and then the newspapers, especially in the 20th century, editorializing about local amateur Mm -hmm. minstrel shows. 
And so what do you see? You see the newspaper having ads saying go to the theaters that would have been where these things would have been performed, right? So most of it is like promotional artifacts. Right. Then you have editorials that literally, you know, today we live in a digital world where we get so much news coming at us. We can't even really imagine what it would have been like in like the late 19th, early 20th century when that probably would have been the extent of your news, right? So they're just very detailed. They tell you everything. They list every actor who was in the show. They tell you scene by scene almost what happened. Right. Like it's just a lot of detail. So as someone who studies history, it's great for me because I'm not guessing when I tell you. It's actually written out explicitly exactly who played what character, who was in blackface. Yeah. And then they describe exactly what went on in the show. They so, provided their own receipts. Yes, they did. So it's not really up for debate when people want to say, oh, I think. You know, maybe you're just reading in. No, no, it's explicit. Is there ever any connection between this thing that's happening on the stage and the fact that there are black people in our society? Did they come to the shows? What do they think? Or is this an insult? Like, at what point? I mean, I know at some point this became something that was controversial. You know, it's really interesting because at the same time, I'm also studying the history of what they call Jubilee singing, which is sort of black spirituals. That many of us might know, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot is Mm -hmm. one of them. There's like a whole bunch of them. So this is really the Fisk Jubilee Singers out of Fisk University. They traveled to Toronto 22 times over a 20-year period, really. And what I'm bringing this up because there's one example that I found is where the Fisk Jubilee were denied. They could not stay in any of the hotels in Toronto. They were denied access. So I think it was the Globe was outraged about the caste system that seems to be in the city and the discrimination. So what I'm saying to you is that they expressed this outrage that this black troupe that were singing spirituals could not get a hotel rooms, but there was no such outrage over the fact that you were still caricaturing black people on the stage. Right. So it's like a weird disconnect between yeah. the two, and I, I haven't yet figured out what that is. It's sort of still alive. I mean, you know, as I speak to you today, Heather Malik just wrote a column in the Toronto Star of the Trudeau incident, which we'll talk about, but pointing to this sort of Quebec exceptionalism. She says the French are like that. Oh, yes. Like, as if we as black people have to accept that. As recently as when the when Robert Lepage, the avant-garde celebrated Quebec theater director, had this play Slav, Slave. Yes, uh, yes, that was for the and it was around the Jazz Fest, right? Yeah, and and was very defiant to have white actors depicting black characters, slaves on a plantation. That you know, this wasn't racist. This was his artistic expression. I don't even have words. I mean, I lived in Montreal for many years, so at a certain point, you you realize you're up against something that is not just going to be solved in a conversation. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's a generational thing and it's a cultural thing that I, as someone who did not who was not raised in a French speaking place, just don't fully understand. There is a, a defense thrown up sometimes saying, well, how come it's OK in instance X and why was it OK for Drake to dress in blackface in those pictures that push a T? Right. And again, if you read what Drake actually said, he was making a commentary on how that's how Hollywood would like me to be. Right. So if Robert Lepage tries to use that, this is also a satirical comment. Or if an artist uses that as their defense, I mean, this is an identity politics issue where Drake, I think, has a certain kind of position where he, where as a black man, he can. That 
I think a lot of a lot of people have a hard time swallowing that there is a racial division as to who's allowed to make those types of comments. Yes, because isn't. what I've come to know to be true is most white people don't think that they're oppressing anyone. They don't see white supremacy as being something that's embodied. They only go to hate crimes, mm-hmm. right? It's like it has to be a hate crime. Otherwise, I'm not white supremacy. What is that? But what they don't seem to understand is the mere fact that you have the thought and power to put me on <laughs> means that y- you don't see me as your equal. Yeah. You don't do that to people who are your equal. You just don't, right? Like you you never would. You only do it to people who you think are inferior to you. So they could deny that truth, but it is the truth. And so that's why it's a very difficult conversation because both parties have to admit where they're coming from and we're not coming at it as equals. No, the, but, but it is complicated. <laughs> right? It's so complicated because the love and theft part is that yeah. there was a connection to black culture that white kids want to take part in. It is. And, and I think what the, the mere ability to steal something from another group is power. Yeah. Like I can't steal anything from white culture. <laughs> like what could I take? I have nothing that I could take mayonnaise. <laughs> I don't know, butter. <laughs> like, like, what am I taking? Like, there's, I don't really have a move. Like, yeah. you know, I'm kind of having to stay in my body and exist in this world. But I think what the framing, white framing actually says, if I want to do something, and this leads to the Trudeau thing, I think he's probably thinking, I would like to do this. Why shouldn't I? Yeah. Who's going to tell me that I can't do this? Yeah. Well, and nobody did. I mean, and it's, nobody I mean, would. That's kind of the most alarming thing about this is just that he went and did it. I guess nobody said anything to him because he did it two more times after that. <laughs> right. And nobody told anybody for 20 years. Two more times that we know of. Just because there's yeah. pictures doesn't mean that's the end of it, right? Like, we don't know. I want to venture into difficult territory here. My initial awareness of just how pervasive blackface is, and, you know, I I just was thinking about this reading some of your writing, specifically about the jazz singer. I first came to be aware of this when I got really interested in vintage cartoons. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, cartoons, oh man. Which are just absolutely filled with this stuff. And and then when I got that you the, don't remember as a kid. No, and now that I've got kids, it's like very careful. Like what what am I going to let my kids see? Is you know you got to really vet everything very carefully. But delving into it and realizing that Mickey Mouse is a minstrel character, the whole design, and going back before that to the Fleischer Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Betty Boop cartoons. Oh. And uh, I used to love Betty Boop until I was thirty, and <laughs> then I. Realized. I still love Betty Boop, but it's complicated. Yeah, it's no, I, Tom and Jerry, even. Yeah. So this is what I learned, and what I learned from you today, and then comparing that with what I know from these cartoons. I mean, you you were writing about the jazz singer, and it was such an interesting way of looking at it that, I mean, this was the story of a Jewish man who was asserting his independence from his very strict Orthodox background that he was expected to be a cantor. And he was breaking off from strict Jewish culture because he, now he's an, he's an American entertainer. He's a jazz singer and he's going to, you know, rebel in this kind of American fashion. That's like kind of pre-rock and roll, like, fuck you, dad. I'm going to go and uh, this is how I express myself by dressing up in blackface. And that's how he asserts his Americanism, not just his yeah. independence from, you know. And so you wrote about that in a way that made me think because it was about how even the other in the form of a Jew could sort of create that path to whiteness by like, uh, how different than you can I be? Cause I can other black people as well. This is what complicates this. I don't think it contradicts it, but it complicates it. 
reading up on the history of the Fleischer brothers, who were these Jewish cartoonists who did the Betty Boop cartoons and, yep. and other cartoons. And many and others, yeah. Popeye and Superman and all sorts of things, who were direct competitors with Walt Disney, this notorious anti-Semite. And these two rival cartoon studios, Disney One, Disney was all kind of like these white farm boys <laughs> doing farm humor with their minstrel characters and Song of the South later on. And the Fleischers were these Jewish city boys and their humor is very city. Yep. And Betty Boop is like this hussy and, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, there's all kinds of Yiddish humor. And what I found out was that the Betty Boop cartoons, which contain tons of blackface stuff in them. I know, tons, yeah. Also were the first screen appearance of Louis Armstrong ever. Yes. And I, I think I've, I've recently written about that in something that's not out yet. In a horrific cartoon. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's horrific. I mean, he becomes a gorilla, yeah, basically, right? Yeah, his face is floating as this monstrous. Chasing and they're afraid of him. Yes. Yeah. And there's all kinds of like cannibal scenes and Betty Boop cartoons <laughs> yes. and things like that. And yet these are revered in the animation world because of the beautiful, like, you know, these were actual collaborations because they would work with Cab Calloway and Louis Armstrong. They and this actually... was in the 30s, right? So the yeah. technology, it's, it's actually just aesthetically kind of amazing. They're beautiful cartoons. Yeah, they uh, are. And they're, and they're horrible cartoons. Yes. And they're funny cartoons. They're and both. they're racist cartoons. Everything. And they are legitimate collaborations yes. between recent Jewish immigrants and black musicians. Yeah. You know, like the dance moves, they rotoscoped them. And I think I glorified this when I was younger because I was aware like there was a time when Jewish klezmer music and jazz music were kind of fusing together. Yeah, yeah. And you could see this as this blueprint for what would later happen with hip hop. I mean, like, are the Beastie Boys in blackface or are the Beastie Boys lovers of hip hop? Again, that's love and is, theft. It, is it, Elvis Presley a, a, yeah, a racist thief? I mean, he I mean, he believes that he loves this. Uh, he believed that this was, uh, you know, but of course, no, no black man could be Elvis Presley, you know? Yeah. So... Uh, I, it, Even we can go right up to Robin Thicke, that nice falsetto. Yeah. That actually comes from black culture. Yeah. Singing in that key and the whole style. With Miley Cyrus twerking on him. Again, so is that, that's love and theft. It, it hasn't really gone away, right? And so when you're black, you see this so clear. When you're not, it almost like it takes you off guard. Like, I don't know, what do you mean? People are really shocked. But this becomes an excuse. I'm sure it's the same excuse yes. that Elger Olson would make. I love black music. Exactly. And then they say, oh, but it's flattering. They're just flattering the person. Yeah. It's like, you can flatter me by buying my records. You yeah. don't have to put me on. <laughs> like, you know, I, I explained this to a friend the other night. It's like, say you're the overweight woman at work. You know, you're the chubby girl. And another woman who's normally like a size two comes to work one day and she's in a fat suit. Hey, look at me. Yeah. I just wanted to see what it was like to be you for a day. You probably wouldn't think that was funny. Like, you'd probably be like, what is, what the hell? Like, how could she do that? You'd yeah. be so outraged that she did that to flatter you. Meanwhile, she's really mirroring maybe something about you that one, it's not going to look like you. It's going to look a little grotesque. So that means that she see me as grotesque just because, so let's be clear, blackface doesn't look like black people. Yeah. It's a grotesque, even the images of Trudeau, especially the one where he was in a t-shirt, that's a grotesque yeah. depiction. So that's what I also don't understand when people like, oh, it's not really meant to offend, but no black person actually looks like that. So what are you saying about the color of my skin? Like, is it ugly? Like, there's just so many, so many layers to it that are just to black people clearly offensive, but then to so many others, it's like they just don't see it. it. It's actually kind of bizarre. There's this ritual that mimicry, maybe apart from blackface, this ritual, it's like the Saturday Night Live ritual where somebody's been mimicking somebody 
and you know whether it's I don't know Dana Carvey doing his great Mick Jagger or something. And then finally on one episode, he'll be doing it. And then the real Mick Jagger yeah, comes in. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it's like this moment where, wow, this is like this god, Mick Jagger, but he's sort of put in his place. Like, this guy's got his number. <laughs> yeah. And then the ritual ends when Mick Jagger laughs along and, yes. and, and shows, like, that he he's in on the joke or he'll allow this to occur. And I feel like in a way that's sort of constantly being pushed back on black people of, like, can't you just, like, laugh along? Yeah, like, we should be. We should be. You're right. That's the perfect example. And and the reason why we're not laughing is because, one, we're tired. <laughs> we're tired of it. I mean, if I'm just going to be real honest, like I'm tired of seeing white people in blackface. I It's just forget being offended. I'm exhausted yeah. with dealing with this same fascination for centuries. Again, I've been studying this since the 1830s. It's like why hasn't it gone away? I think that's really the question. Nobody's wearing corsets. Nobody's wearing like big bell-shaped dresses, yeah. right? No, men, although men's beards are starting to grow a lot longer than they used to, but nobody's wearing like collarless shirts that they then send the collars out. So we've let go of a lot of costuming. Right. And yet this, we can't let go of. So for me, I'm exhausted. I'm tired of it. <laughs> Do you think we're done with it? I mean, this if there was a week ago or a week and a half ago, some ambiguity in the national discourse where, where somebody like Justin Trudeau could say, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. If there was any sense yeah. that this was like maybe okay, no one can, can use that excuse anymore. No. Like if you do it from this point forward, you're doing that with full knowledge yes. that there is widespread consensus amongst non-white people that this is racist. Right. And I just, I actually thought about this. Halloween is coming. Halloween is always a terrible time for a lot of black people because we just wait for the headlines. I just feel like at a lot of those parties now, it's going to be like if you, when you go into certain meetings, you're like, okay, everyone, cell phones in the bin, right? I just feel like it's still going to happen, but they're just going to demand that people put their cameras away so nobody can document. You're anticipating secret black... Like, secret is the black, desire to do this yes, so strong? I can bet you right now someone's like... They, because they're they're feeling like they're being bullied. Yeah. So now they're going to have a protest, right, to claim back blackface and it's have a little It's super illicit group. now. It's super yes. forbidden, which has its own attractiveness. Yes, there'll be a little yeah. secret handshake to get in. And now, look, we're free. We can we can put on... like. So, again, what's going on in your psyche? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's something going on in the psyche of someone who does this that they're not dealing with. And it, and it's not for me to to help them deal with it. It's for them to ask themselves, why do you want to put on the quote unquote skin of another person? I don't have an answer because I've never done it, right? And, and even if I did, what could I do? <laughs> just I would look silly. Nobody would take it. It wouldn't be a caricature. I would just look crazy. And about the Trudeau incident or incidents, how did you feel about the way, you know, to a lot of people, he apologized. What more could you expect? What was your take on his response? Yeah, I mean, you know what? As the days, weeks go on now from this, I am just so shocked that how he won't explain his thinking. This is the issue of whiteness. When the person who's done this is called upon to explain, they won't. They won't tell you why they did this at the time. And he says, I'm a different person now. Did you go to therapy? Did you talk to some people? Like, they won't tell you how they've transformed. Mm -hmm. They just keep saying, it was wrong of me. Yes, it was racist. And, and that's what's troubling me the most, how he is shutting down his own interrogation of it in the public. He just won't say why. I've seen a lot of journalists of color demanding answers to those questions, like... 
if you're saying your privilege played a role, what role did it play? It was 2001. So what was your conception of blackface? When did you come to understand that it was racist and why is it racist? And I think that a lot of people are taking that as like, oh, come on, you're just you're just like kicking him when he's down. Like you're trying to make more of this. Those things are self-evident. Why is it important that he explain those things beyond just sort of like making I, I him can give take the, his medicine? Yes, I can give the perfect example. People always talk about, you know, there's been many African-American male actors who have said homophobic things. Like Kevin Hart was not able to host the Oscars because 10 years ago in a stand-up, he made some homophobic jokes. Mm-hmm. I think he went on Ellen and, and explained you know, I was in a different place and I didn't know many gay people. Like, he was interrogated, basically, to explain his thinking over jokes. This man put on makeup to look like an entire race of people and he won't even explain why he did it. Yeah. So I just think if the two things are on some level equal in that they are meant to defame a group, in this case, one case is LGBTQ, the other case, black people. Why is it that... One group who does this has to explain. The black male cannot get away with not explaining. Yet the white male can say, you know, let's move forward now. That was years ago. I'm a different person. So I think what we also need to understand is how black people are really never. And I said this to a friend and, you know, it really clicked with her. She's also Jewish. It clicked with her because she started to realize that, yeah, you're right. It's very unusual for the non-black person to have to empathize with the black person. And I think that's actually at the core of this. We're asking you to empathize with us and Mm -hmm. to kind of feel for us. And people are actually struggling with that. I I think that you make a, I mean, the double standard is like kind of hard to deny. Just being kind of a pedantic journalist type, I I feel like part of it's just about the record. It would be instructive for the record for him to take us through it. You know, it it would be kind of like, you, you couldn't just say that he he's just sort of like, it's a sop. It's, he's, he's placating or pandering. If he's like, no, let me explain to you why that shouldn't happen, why I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You know, we'd have the facts, I guess. I, and I, we'd you know, also... I, I always want that. I always want it to be very clear and undeniable. <laughs> yes, very journalistic to want the facts. But we'd also be able to believe his transformation. He's telling you he's changed. Well, how, how did that happen? Because you're older. I'm telling you in my own personal life, nothing irritates me more than when someone's like, well, I did that when I was 25. I'm not that person anymore because I'm 50. Well, did you do something to become different well, or we, you're just we, old? We know what changed. What changed is he got caught, right? <laughs> yeah, like, and now like, we're I'm just very old. sorry That's that it. I got caught. Yeah. I knew that I had done this, but I didn't tell anyone because I was hoping I wouldn't get caught. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I did get caught. And for that, I am very, very sorry. sorry. Exactly. So it's just so, to me, it's like, it's just disingenuous. It's like, if you just tell us what happened. And I always think of the time when Barack Obama was just um, elected. I think he made a flippant comment about, oh, well, you know, white people. And they had to have a summit at the White House to talk about, or he made some big race speech. And I'm like, a white president would never be asked to do that. Yeah. And so why are we as black people always having to explain our quote unquote racial discretions when white people are never asked to do so? We are always forcing them to move on. Don't dwell on it. You know, it happened. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a bigger conversation of sort of the lack of empathy for the black experience and also the, the trust value. I mean, white voices just tend to be trusted more. Yeah, you kind of, it's like a a default benefit of the doubt versus a default suspicion. Yes, it is very true. 
Whereas Justin Trudeau's got to do a lot to lose the presumption of innocence. Like a like lot. The yeah. idea of like this is just an innocent thing that people are blowing out of proportion. It's like, well, what about the second time? Well, what about the third yeah. time? <laughs> It's like, ah. Maybe we need 10. Yeah. Like, we get to the magic 10. Then they're like, okay, I think there's a problem now. And why is that? Because he's a presumed innocent, right? He didn't mean it. I mean, you know what my ultimate takeaway is from this sort of Canadian chapter of blackface that, that we're exploring here? And what, what is the contribution to the understanding of blackface that we get out of this? Is that it's got nothing to do with black people, <laughs> right? Like, it, Thank it, you for saying that. Like, yeah. if you can do that in like Saskatchewan you know, in 1920 or something in a community where you've never met a black person, if you can do like you're processing your own stuff when you do that. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why if you can do it in present day Alberta or present day Nova Scotia and you don't even know black people. Yeah. I don't know why you're expecting us to comment. (laughs) Like we're actually not, you know, Maya Angelou used to say we're not in it in as much as it's about us, we're actually not in it, right? They have their work to do. Like, and I just think, you know, one of the things that I know to be true is that many white people never think about race. They never think about their own racial identity. They'll be quick to point out that I'm black, but then they never thought about what it means to be white. Well, it's a pretty amorphous concept, you know, which is why it might be hard for you to steal something from it because it's like, what? what is it? What know? is it? As a Jewish man, I'm white, but, uh, you know, I didn't used to be, you know, or at least my grandfather wasn't. You it's know? true, right? And, and now I think there's a lot of people who are say that they're white, but then they tell me, oh, well, I'm, I'm half Italian and Greek. And I'm like, is that really white? A century ago, it wouldn't have been either. Yeah. So I think whiteness... You know, it really is the term that maybe we need to start interrogating. Like, what does it actually mean? And and who is actually performing these, you know, putting on blackface? Is it really about race? Like I said before, is it just about a kind of social control? Like to say that we can still control these people. That's your Canada Land. If you like this show, we want to give you ad-free versions of it, uh, you know, when you give us money. Five bucks a month, Canadian. It's uh, it's pretty reasonable, actually. Just click on the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. We do rely on your support. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadalandshow.com, where our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, has been covering everything from the Toronto Star owners' uh, connections to the way that the Canadian media has been covering the protests and everything else. If you have not checked out our website in a while, go have a read. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 